baseball. Klazuski, Campanella talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey. Mickey and the Duke, and we are here with the Duke, Duke Goldman, and we are talking baseball. It is hot stove league time. Duke Goldman, the Mets. I will get to your team in just a second, but first we want to hear your perspective on the Red Sox and the Yankees, the beloved New York Yankees. Oh, no, it's the beloved Red Sox. Okay, what's happening? A lot is. Well, I'm, of course, being the contrarian that I am, would argue that a lot isn't happening. Uh, not n- nearly enough. Well, you know, there's a broader perspective here, which is that the hot stove league has, has been maybe warm this year. And you might say, well, how could it not be hot? After all, Shohei Otani signed and this incredible Japanese pitcher Yamamoto signed. And, oh, by the way, Juan Soto went to the Yankees, something that I'm sure, Bill, you're extremely happy about. And I will freely admit he is a world-class player. And if Aaron Judge can stay healthy and if Giancarlo Stanton can recover some of his past glory, they might have a competitive team, a competitive team. But actually, those highlights really speak to a pretty dead hot stove league. And there are a lot of different reasons for it, which we can get into if you desire. But looking at our local teams, well, local teams or favorite teams, the Red Sox made a few moves. Um, they subtracted more than they added, I'm afraid. They subtracted Alex Verdugo, which from what I hear, I I have to say, I I have to confess, I don't consider myself that much of a Red Sox fan anymore. Sorry, everybody. The minute they traded Mookie Betts, my alliance to the Red Sox waned. Mine did when they traded uh, Babe Ruth. Ah, well, you go back a lot further (laughs) than I do. Uh, (laughs) Talk about dating yourself, Eisenberg, really. By the way, since we have a pause, for anybody who might not be a baseball fan, what is a hot stove league? So back in the day, back when... There, you know, there weren't really other major team sports. Baseball was the sport. People sat around hot stoves. You know, they didn't have modern heat pumps and things like that. They had pot-bellied stoves that they heated up and they sat in a room. Usually, you had this room that was the hottest room. A lot of times, it was the kitchen. The rest of the house was freezing, and everybody sat around that stove and warmed their tootsies and talked baseball. And what was going to go on in the off season, and what were their teams going to do, and who was better, and who was worse, and so we still call it today, even though you know we live in a modern day twenty first century world, we call it the hot stove league. Okay, so the hot stove league has had a few changes to the Red Sox, uh, some additions to the Yankees, some forlorn hope about Giancarlo Stanton, who's getting paid, I don't know, $20 million something a year to strike out most of the time. So what do you see in the big picture for the upcoming baseball season? Because we point out, pitchers and catchers report for spring training soon. Well, yeah, the, the off-season, the hot stove season is pretty short, actually, these days. And, you know, what is it... Uh, I'm going to guess, doing a quick calculation, we're about 45 days from pitchers and catchers right now. So um, there's still a few players out there. 
Um, from what I understand, the Red Sox are pretty much done. They went out and signed their big sign, Lucas Giolito, paid him $38 million for two years. I'll tell you, a guy who with eight wins, 15 losses, and a 4.48 ERA, he's worth $20 million a year. Okay, for those who are not baseball fans, uh, uh, Professor, Professor Goldman is being uh, a little bit a tad facetious. Yes, uh, I was going to say uh, morbidly sarcastic, but okay. Um, he does not tad seem facetious to, morbidly. He does not seem to pr- approve of what the Red Sox have done. Spent thirty-eight million dollars for a pitcher who last year was terrible. Well, and apparently he was better towards the end of the year, and you know uh, he was good the year before. And pitchers are at a premium. There aren't too many good ones who can throw ninety-eight miles an hour. Nobody knows if they're going to last or not. Um, the salary structure is such that a you know, potentially good pitcher, even one who's had a bad year, is worth something close to that. The Mets just went out inside Sean Manaya for a mere $28 million for two years based on the notion that he had a good second half of the year. Um, so they're, they're looking for upside. And the Red Sox have somebody, and they also subtracted Chris Sale, which I guess is probably, you know, by Red Sox fan standards, you know, sort of a mixed blessing. On the one hand, he didn't deliver what he promised. And to Sale's credit, he said, you know, I didn't live up to my contract. You know, he really didn't, he didn't pitch full time for the Red Sox. But well, the Atlanta Braves often know what they're doing, and they went out and acquired Sale and even extended his contract for a year. And, you know, if Sale can pitch perhaps in a six-man rotation, perhaps shut down part of the time. If he can give you 20 good starts, he's worth something, um, and especially on a team as deep as the Braves. On the Red Sox, they need more than, than Sale can deliver. So will Lucas Giolito do it? It's, it's, there's a chance. Go back. Sale was traded to the from, Atlanta Braves. from the Red Sox Correct. to the Atlanta Braves. Right. Sale has been a, was a huge sign um, at great expense, a Hall of Fame pitcher, who was hurt most of the time? He was, or much of the time, he was with the Red Sox and did not, did not pitch. Literally, did not pitch. In exchange for Sale, the Red Sox got someone who they think is going to be a stalwart in their infield for years and years to come. A guy named Vaughn Grissom, who um, is one of those prospects that the Braves felt they could part with. He has significant upside. On the other hand. Um, I don't think he's going to be a star. He's going to plug a gap for now. And, you know, it's always hard to say. You're, you're, you know, it's futures. It's like futures that you're gambling on. What is the future? Like commodities. Is this commodity? And we'll talk more about that as we go into future shows. Are, are ballplayers property? Well, ballplayers are commodities. We're looking for a guy who's got upside in the middle infield, and Red Sox fans are hoping he's going to help fill that hole. Um, Okay. Okay. So as long as we're on this topic, how are the Red Sox going to fare next year? Here we are in the hot stove studio. What do you say, Duke Goldman? Well, now that they have Craig Breslow behind the helm and with the steadying (laughs) influence of Alex Cora um, and, you know, Lucas Giolito winning 20 games, I see them screaming to the top of the division. No, I I don't. I see them being mediocre. I see them having an upside of 85 to 88 wins and sneaking into the playoffs and a downside 
down towards 75. Now, what we've seen is teams that sneak into the playoffs these days often make it to the World Series. So this leads to the viewpoint, which I think a lot of owners and the Red Sox owners seem to be one of those groups that says, let's not go all in. I mean, because we don't want to spend the money the Dodgers spent. And what the Dodgers have done have made sure they'll make the playoffs, but by no means make sure they're going to make it all the way through the playoffs. And Red Sox ownership, and I'm hearing this more and more, the the crescendo is building. And in Red Sox Nation, what I'm hearing is, when are those owners going to sell this team? Because they seem a lot more interested in their other properties than they are in the Red Sox. Their viewpoint is, we delivered four World Series to this fan base, and you know what? Red Sox Nation's still going to go out to our wonderful Fenway Pack and you know, sit in our, our crummy seats and spend lots of money, and we'll only spend what we need to spend. Duke Goldman, as a baseball historian, I, I'm going to circle back um, off of the Red Sox ownership and back to projecting how to build a good team. And it always seems to me that at this time of year, when we're talking hot stove, when we're talking about uh, what we could do to improve our teams, there's basically three types of players. There's one who right now is just tearing it up, is fantastic. Let's get that player, put him in our lineup. There's those, like you've been talking about, who have great stuff but haven't delivered yet, like the recent Red Sox acquisition. You know, it appears he can throw at 98 miles an hour and he has four pitches and he looks really good, but he hasn't proven it yet. And then there's those unproven kids in the, in, in the minor leagues who seem to have great potential who haven't had the chance to even prove that they're underperforming yet. So you're a general manager as a baseball historian. Which of those is your trait? Is it... Let's buy proven talent that's going like big gangbusters now. That's somebody who's proven that they've got a lot of potential but has it delivered or somebody who hasn't had a chance yet. And the answer to that is it's complicated, right? I mean, it depends on you know, how much resources you have as a team, how well your fan base tolerates rebuilding, um, what kind of talent you already have in the farm, what kind of talent is in the crops. You know, I, I read a publication periodically called Baseball America, which is the only publication out there that covers the minor leagues, high school, college, international. And, you know, the, the organizations are looking, and not all crops are equal. They're looking to see what kind of talent is out there. If there's a lot of talent coming up in the next year or two, you might emphasize a little more the development, especially if you feel like your fan base is willing to wait. But we know in places like Boston, in places like New York, even in places like L.A., although L.A. is famously kind of way more laid back, the feeling is we want to win now. Our team needs to be competitive all the time. And then there's the question of what are owners doing these days? And more and more owners are conglomerates, people who have business interests outside of sports, but oftentimes, like the Red Sox owners, have other interests in other sports. So how much are, they, are their eyes on the prize? Hard to say. I think there's also a fourth category, which is replacement-level players, players that are good enough to compete, you, keep you competitive but don't have tremendous upside or tremendous future. And this is what actually my Mets are doing. Their viewpoint is, you know what? We're not ready to compete. We went out there and signed Max Scherzer, Justin Verla- Verlander for $43 million a year each. They didn't have the stuff because they were both near the end of their careers. The team exploded last year, ended up winning 75 games when most people expected them to win close to 100. This year, they're signing players that give them a chance 
to get into the playoffs, really figuring that they're going to wait. More of those replacement-level players. And then next year's free agent crop, another thing you have to look at, is going to be better than this year's. It's going to have more depth. So they're going to wait till the next offseason when there are a few better people to, to try to sign and try to build for next year. The Yankees still have to decide, for instance, are they going to sign, well, they could sign <coughs> Jordan Montgomery, for instance, the guy they traded away for Harrison Bader, who's now on the Mets. Um, and he was a successful pitcher for the Cardinals, and Bader didn't do a whole lot except had a few good postseason games for them. Um, and I just want to squeeze in. I think that last, <coughs> last year the Mets had the highest payroll in baseball. They did. And I think that the Yankees had the second highest payroll in yeah. baseball, and they were both abysmal in their performance. Right. And, you know, I think for a lot of us, myself included, I like seeing teams, you know, even my own team, explode and implode even when they spend the most money. I like to think that there are intelligent operators out there who can make the most out of what their team's resources are and use their their savvy and their knowledge of, of team management and of, of ball players that are coming up and build without, you know, breaking the bank. Like Tampa Bay. Like Tampa Bay. It's amazing that Tampa Bay does it every year, it yeah. seems. They are yeah. perennially contenders, and they have the smallest budget in this, a park that doesn't fill. And uh, how do they do it, Duke? They do it by operating under constraint. You know, sometimes constraint frees you. You know you can't go out there and spend $35 million on a free agent. You know, most of the time when you spend that kind of money on a free agent, it might be worth it in year two or three. And by year five or six, you're really regretting it. Look at Giancarlo Stanton, you know, who is just a dead weight on the Yankee payroll. They didn't sign him, but they traded for him in year three when he was signed to a 13-year, $325 million contract, which... Honestly, today doesn't sound like a lot of money anymore, given that Otani at least supposedly got $700 million for 10 years. It's really more like 460 But nevertheless, they're stuck with Stanton. They've been stuck with below-average performance for the last few years, and they've stuck with him for another three years or so. Before we reduce Bill Newman to, uh, to tears by talking further about the Yankees' failures, let's take a break. We're talking to Duke Goldman. We'll be back to talk more inside baseball right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue talking baseball with the Duke, Duke Goldman, baseball historian and fan who is now going to give us his, well, perspective on Hall of Fame entrance this year and whether they deserve to be there. So two weeks from today, the 23rd of January at 6 p.m., the Hall of Fame is going to release its results for who from the Baseball Writers Association of America has gotten the requisite 75% of the votes to get into the Hall of Fame. And there is a gentleman named Ryan Thibodeau. He has something called the Hall of Fame Tracker. Anybody can look that up on uh, you know, Google it, you know, and find out where at this point the vote is because, though they're not required to, a lot of people publicly release their ballots, people who are voting. So right now, about 120 votes, approximately 30% have been released. Adrian Beltre, those of us in Red Sox Nation remember him well. He only spent one year here but made it clear that he didn't want his head touched. Um, 
a great third baseman, is getting 98% of the votes, as he should. He's going to be in. He's been compared roughly to Chipper Jones, the Atlanta Braves third baseman. Chipper had was somewhat of a better offensive player, but nowhere near as good offensively as Beltre, defensively. And Chipper Jones played for a long time. Right. So solid, you know, grade A Hall of Famer. Yeah, my Braves background, there's Eddie Matthews and there's Chipper Jones in Braves. Right. So Beltre's up there in the top five to ten third baseman of all time. He's getting in. Then you've got Joe Maurer, longtime catcher, first draft pick, Minnesota Twins, homegrown star, uh, and Todd Helton, who put up amazing numbers, but in Colorado, both at barely over 82%. Well, stop there for a second, because it seems to me that a lot of the players— who receive Hall of Fame uh, uh, consideration are those who play for big market teams. They play for New York. They play for L.A. They play for Chicago, perhaps. They play for maybe Atlanta. Um, But stars in smaller market teams who people don't hear of, they don't get the same kind of consideration no matter how good they are. Well, but the fact that Joe Maurer and Todd Helton are getting that consideration perhaps pushes a little bit back against what you're saying. And, you know, um, I think now with the ubiquitous media we have and Twitter and everything else, you know, or I think it's called X these days. I don't know. I'm not always keeping up with that stuff. Um, You know, I think some of those smaller town heroes are getting attention. Also, with the advent of modern day stats, people look at it. They can go on baseballreference.com and say, oh, my God, Todd Helton had three years in the late 90s that are just up there with the best. Now, you have to realize he played in sky-high, mile-high stadium, and those numbers are a bit inflated. But nevertheless, Helton and Maurer look like they have maybe a better than 50% chance of getting in this year, which means that if they don't get in this year, they'll probably get in next year. Um, and then you've got a guy named Billy Wagner who was a lights-out closer, pitched for a whole bunch of teams. He's at 79.8%. Now, these percentages will drop because... As we go along, especially the people that never release their votes publicly are the ones who vote for less people. So Wagner is right on the margin, and I suspect he may not get in. He's in his second to last year. They only get to vote for 10 years. But if he doesn't get in this year, he'll probably get in next year. So there's a decent chance three people will get in uh, through the baseball writers. Duke Goldman, I have a question for you. This is who gets into the Hall of Fame Correct. in Cooperstown, New York, mm-hmm. for historical reasons. Yes, what I want to know is whether the Hall of Fame still holds its allure and its, its, its grip on America the way it used to. I remember I couldn't wait to someday get to Cooperstown, <clears throat> excuse me, to the Hall of Fame. Is that still, does that still capture America's imagination? And the answer I would give is yes and no. You know, on the one hand, baseball is not the, the American pastime anymore. It's, it's football and shopping. I mean, you know, come on. <laughs> We all know what people do with their free time. You know, um, baseball is nowhere near the most popular sport. On the other hand, Cooperstown is baseball town USA, and the people that love baseball have a reverence for it. It is just an amazing place, and there is no Hall of Fame quite like it. And for baseball fans, is there anything that is better fodder for a really good conversation than who belongs in Cooperstown? I think so, yeah. And I I think a lot of us spend copious amounts of times arguing about it. And one of the things I want to talk about going forward, and we will talk about in two weeks when I talk about uh, fair play, we're going to talk about another player who I think deserves to get serious consideration for a Hall of Fame, a guy named Kurt Flood. 
who I suspect a lot of you haven't heard of or have heard of barely. Kurt Flood's main contribution was he pushed baseball to deal with their uh, labor issues because he sued baseball, saying that baseball was not allowing him freedom of movement. Thanks or, to Kurt Flood and Andy Messerschmitt, we don't have a reserve clause that, that treats you as chattel. As a right, because he famously claimed he was a well-paid slave, which was a very controversial statement then and is a controversial statement now. Um, so there is going to be a classic era vote in December of 2024, and what I would like to talk about uh, on our next segment on Fair Play is about Kurt Flood, but also some Negro League greats who I think merit serious consideration. I can't wait till that conversation. It happens two weeks from today. Correct. Duke Goldman, thank you so very much. <clears throat> My pleasure. Something I know about, because I've spent many walks, lonely walks in the twilight, all through Boston and those suburbs. Right now I'm imagining the public gardens. The public gardens by where the swan boats are. 